So what I want you to do is I want you to get your Bibles out. If you have a paper Bible, I want you to get that. We are going to be in, I'll, we'll answer your question later. We're going to be in Mark, what? That's all right. Uh, yeah. Anyways, if you need a paper Bible, there are Bibles on that back table back there. Um, it is our gift to you. And if you if you need a paper Bible and you don't have one, that sign that is yellow, there's a stack of Bibles over there. Feel free to grab one, take it home. We'd love for you to have a paper version of the Bible because there's something different and amazing about holding a book and reading a book, right? You know, Kindle's awesome. The portability, the portability, portableness, portability, the portability of like a Kindle or whatever that is, is pretty awesome. But there's something about turning pages and reading books, and it's actually like brain science stuff, that things um, connect better in your head when um, it is on paper. And so we want you to engage with the, the text that we're going to be studying on paper. But if you do not have a paper Bible and you use your phone, that is totally fine. If you go to the YouVersion Bible app, we have all of our notes there, and you can find that. If you need help uh, navigating to that, ask the person next to you, and they will show you how to get there. And if they don't know, ask the other person. If they don't know, I'll show you later. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 52. Uh, I want to give you a brief recap of what's taking place and uh, the week leading up to Jesus' death. Um, and resurrection is referred to as Passion Week and, or Holy Week, and it's um, we're going to be you know we're studying Mark uh, the book of Mark, and so in Mark it is chapters 11 through 15. So I want to give you a brief timeline of where we are, and then Sam is going to come and he is going to read our text. Tonight, So Sunday was Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Monday, Jesus clears the temple of its corruption. Tuesday, Jesus' authority is questioned by the religious leaders. <clears throat> Wednesday, the religious and political leaders ask him questions about taxes, marriage, and the commandments, trying to trap him and, and have a reason to arrest him. And then Wednesday evening, Jesus is anointed in Bethany. Thursday is the Last Supper, which that was the text that we uh, walked through last Wednesday. And then today, uh, Jesus is betrayed and arrested. And then on Friday, Jesus has a trial before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate. He's beaten, crucified, and buried. And so just a little bit of context of this is what's taking place in the portion of the Gospel of Mark that we are studying. They had just eaten Passover together. Um, Jesus instituted a new way to celebrate and remember God's provision and the anticipation of his second coming. And now they are on their way to the Mount of Olives. And so if you want to know more about Passover and why the Jews celebrated Passover, I would encourage you to listen to last week's sermon. It is on Google Podcasts and um, Spotify. If you just type in Bethel, Y-T-H, it will pop up. So let's stand together as Sam Mitke comes and he is going to read Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through... 52. Do you want to read this? Yes. Perfect. Yeah, you need that. Yes. All right. 27 through 32, you said? Uh, 27 through 52. Okay. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. 
But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Sam. Aren't you glad you aren't that last guy? So what we're going to do is we're going to break down these approximately 30 verses. And we're going to break it down into about three sections. And we're going to explain uh, what's, what's taking place and how that relates to us today. So the first section that we're going to be walking through is verses 27 through 31. And this is the section where Jesus began predicting the betrayal of his disciples. And these these predictions recorded are most likely taking place on their way to the Mount of Olives. And so they had had Passover, and they were on their way. And I have this picture right here. This is the the view approximately from the like city of Jerusalem looking out into the Mount of Olives. And this next picture uh, is, is looking kind of from Mount of Olives into uh, the, the temple area. So this is where Jesus and his disciples were. And this comes after Jesus says in verse 18, Mark 14, 18, he says that all of them will betray them. And in verse 19, he says that one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. And Jesus in verse 19 or 18 was specifically referencing Judas Um, And that he would ultimately betray Jesus, give them over to the religious leaders. But they would all betray him in a few hours. And we need to define uh, what Jesus meant when he said that they will all fall away. I don't know if you caught that, but it says you will all fall away. And Jesus doesn't mean that they will lose their faith Altogether, Jesus quotes an Old Testament prophet named Zechariah. And the context of that prophecy would mean that their courage would fail and they would forsake Jesus. So this is what he means when he says that you will all fall away. And this would be fulfilled. And the disciples would scatter in fear of being associated with Jesus. 
and they would be united again in Galilee, as Jesus states in verse 28. And then one denial Jesus specifically points out is the denial of Peter. Peter was emphatic in his response to Jesus. Verse 31, he says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the other disciples felt the same exact way that Peter felt. They voiced their devotion to Jesus. They said, like, no matter what happens, that they would be devoted to him. And really, if you think about it, it's not that far out of a claim. These men had been through so much with Jesus. They had been through like physical, like literal storms in, in the Sea of Galilee. They, their, their lives were at stake on multiple accounts. They, were, um, they, would, they encountered demon-possessed people that wanted to kill them. Like They've been through so much. And so it's not far off to say that, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be with you. They were passionately petitioning their devotion to Jesus. Their language was full of absolutes and extreme illustrations. If I have to die, I will never deny you. I would never do that. Let's continue to work through the text. Look at what unfolds next. Verses 32 through 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you uh, keep watch for one hour? He says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same things. He went back and he prayed and fell to the ground. Verse 40, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. And returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And Gethsemane is not an unfamiliar place to Jesus nor the disciples. Gethsemane was a familiar place that Jesus would go to pray and be with God on a regular basis. Luke 22 and John 18 uh, uh, records that. Here's a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane. It is a um, it is an olive garden, and so these are olive trees around there. If you just Google the Garden of Gethsemane, there are some pretty incredible olive trees. They are ancient. They are huge. And Gethsemane um, in the uh, Aramaic means crushed. And so this account of Jesus, did you catch it, was deeply personal. This is where Jesus is in deep distress and is troubled. His soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, as verse 33 and 34 says. He brings his inner circle of disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, to experience this agony that Jesus is going through. Jesus told them to stay and to keep watch. And he said this to them either to like share in his agony or to watch for Judas as he would come to betray him. But here's a question that I want to ask. Why was Jesus in such distress and agony? 
Why was he going into the garden? Why did he fall down on the ground? Why was he using all of this, this really extreme language? Why was he in such distress and agony? Jesus knew the ultimate plan was to eradicate the bondage of sin and pay for sin once and for all. And Jesus knew what the cost, what the cost was. And the cost was his life. Matthew chapter 20. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, this is Jesus talking, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So why was Jesus the one who would eradicate and get away or, or do away with sin and death? What did people do before Jesus to get rid of sin? Um, and the simple answer is the Jewish people lived under the old covenant. If you were last week, you probably remember uh, some of this. But the Jewish people lived within the bounds of what was referred to as the law or the old covenant, which was a system of sacrifices and rituals to maintain their right standing with God. The Bible uses a word to describe that's called righteousness. And so this is how they maintained that right relationship with humanity and with God. Sin was forgiven when a worthy sacrifice was made and God instructed that a perfect and spotless lamb to be killed on their behalf. Let me read this quote. There was a daily sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. Every morning and evening, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple for the sins of the people. These daily sacrifices, like all others, were simply to point people toward the perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In fact, the time of Jesus, this is so cool, at the time of Jesus' death on the cross corresponds to the time of the evening sacrifice was being made in the temple. The Jews at that time would have also been familiar with the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah who foretold the coming of one who would be brought like a lamb led to slaughter and whose sufferings and sacrifice would provide redemption for Israel. Of course, that person was none other than Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. How cool is that? We know that the sacrificial system for the Jewish people, uh, they were a part of the law, um, and that was the, 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 the sacrificial system was the way that they were justified before God. Um, but here's where the law fell short. Romans 8, verses 3 through 4, it says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So when we read this, we have to ask the question, okay, so if this um, old covenant, if the law was put into place to put the people in right standing with God, why was the law powerless to eradicate sin? Why was the old covenant powerless to eradicate sin? It was powerless not because of God. That's not what Romans chapter 8 says, but because it was because of people's sinfulness. It was powerless because humanity could not live a sinless life, therefore requiring continual sacrifices. And so Jesus comes onto the scene, and in Matthew chapter 5, he tells his listeners that he became the fulfillment of the law. 
Jesus is the Son of God sent to the earth to be the sacrificial lamb. And John the Baptist declares Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John chapter 1, verse 29 and 36. And the Jewish sacrificial system, if we're honest, um, is unfamiliar to us and it seems really weird. It seems so weird to sac- a nation would sacrifice an animal twice a day in order to be in right standing with their God. But we are familiar with the concept of payments. We're familiar with making a payment to acquire something or make payments in order to relieve debt. Uh, The adults in the room, the most common example is either a car or a house. Like you make payments and when you make all of the payments and you pay off your debt, the car or the house becomes yours. Another really common one is cell phones. You, you, do you guys remember? No, you don't remember. I remember the days when you had to buy a phone outright and there was no such thing as leasing like a cell phone. There were no monthly payments. Like if you wanted a phone, you had to drop 300 G's or whatever in order to pay for the phone. But nowadays, there is what? There's a fee applied to your monthly bill. Uh, So you are basically renting your phone until you pay it off at the end of like 24 or 30 months, and then the phone becomes yours. So in those two years, the phone really isn't yours. It's the cell phone companies. And so if this is news to you, you're welcome. You should go home. And if you have a cell phone and your parents are paying money every single month for your phone, you should tell them thank you if you don't, okay? Awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, so when you pay off the phone, it is no longer the property of the companies, but it's your personal uh, property, So now Jesus' death on the cross being the final payment for sin and um, paying off a cell phone or a mortgage or a car payment are not one and the same. But now we, we kind of see this picture of what Jesus did to pay for sin. And we have this picture of what he did to, so we have the opportunity to receive eternal life in heaven and be redeemed here on earth. 1 Peter chapter 1. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So this is why Jesus was in pain and in agony and distress to the point of death. Because it was required as the Lamb of God to pay for the sin of the world, past, present, and future. So he knew that he was going to give his life. He was going to face the wrath of God because he would become the embodiment of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In his agony and his distress, he cries out to God, verse 36, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. 
Abba is the most intimate word for father in Aramaic. And Jews actually would never use this word about God because they felt it was disrespectful given the casual and intimate nature and personal nature of it. But Jesus, having a unique relationship with God the Father, he had a closeness that warranted this response. And cup in the Old Testament is often used as a metaphor for wrath or for judgment. And so the cup that Jesus is referring to in verse 36 is his death. So this cup is his death. He made a choice to submit to the will of the Father, no matter the cost. So while he was in the garden, Judas came to betray him. Verse 43 for 52. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Excuse me. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, which means teacher. And he kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him, fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. You know, the, the reality is, is we don't know precisely why Judas betrayed Jesus. It was prophesied long before that, that Jesus would be betrayed. But I don't think Judas began, began his life thinking that he was going to be the one to do it. No one really wakes up thinking, man, I'm going I'm to betray the, the, the promised Messiah. It's going to be awesome. But something I, I wonder is, where did Judas go wrong? What took place in his life that he would make this decision? Matthew 20, 26 tells us that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which was not much money in their time. Converted to today's money, it would have been equivalent to about between $3,000 to about $4,200. So when you think about handing over a friend for a death sentence he didn't deserve, this isn't much money. I know, I know $3,000 a lot, especially as a teenager or a middle schooler or even a high schooler, or even to me, $3,000. Hey, back then, that wasn't much money. That was yeah. Much money. Yeah, but like to us, like converted, yeah, it's like 3000 bucks. So think about giving and, and giving away a friend to, to, to be put to death. Yeah, not, not very much. No. No. And so we have to think to ourselves, like, was it money that really motivated Judas to betray Jesus? And later in the story, I believe it's in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that Judas gave his money back to um, the people, um, the, the, uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders. He's like, I don't want your money anymore. So it's hard for me to think that, um, that, that Judas betrayed him for the money. And a common belief among Jews was that the Messiah would come to free them from the oppression of the Roman government. And Jesus didn't come to do that. And so Judas might have realized that um, he might have realized that Jesus didn't come to literally free him from the Roman oppression. Maybe he felt betrayed himself by Jesus when he didn't do that. 
And so that's maybe why he betrayed Jesus. He's like, well, if you're not going to do what I want you to do for me and for the people, then what's the point in, in all of this? We'll probably never know precisely why Jesus, Judas did what he did, but we can look at his life briefly to reflect on our own. Here's two questions I want us to consider. What are my motivations for following Jesus? Second question, am I hoping Jesus will do blank, and if he doesn't, I'm out? These are good questions for us to consider. As we think about, well, Judas probably didn't do it for the money, so what did he do it for? So we're going to jump into our small groups. This is kind of what we're going to talk about. Um, what, do you, what do you do when you're under stress and are anxious? And does that reflect what Jesus did under those same circumstances? Why or why not? What would cause you to betray a friend? And if we're honest, what are my motivations for following Jesus? So we're going to talk about those questions. We're going to have a dialogue. And remember, our goal in our small groups is not to uh, get through all of the questions as fast as we can. The goal of our, uh, of our small groups is to have a dialogue and a conversation about the text and walk away knowing something more um, about who Jesus is and how that applies to our life. And so we're going to go into our small groups. Um, uh, High school is on this side of the room. Middle school is on this side of the room. Boys are in the back of the room. Girls are in the front. And um, your small group leader will dismiss you when you are done. And I will come find you for the McDonald's card when I check it out to see who it is. Mm -hmm.